Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a first-time filmmaker's journey. I am your host, Josh Lindsay from the Movie Proposal Podcast. And with me is our first-time filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hey, Josh Lindsay. Hello. And sitting next to Christian is our trusty, dusty, research extraordinaire, button-pushing guy, craft services extraordinaire, <laughs> Jason Rugg. Hey there. So, hey, Jason. Uh, last time we talked, uh, David Patterson... The guy who wrote Bridge to Terabithia came yep. up. He read an article of yours, wanted to help you get into the film festival circuit, and then you asked for his advice, and then all hell broke loose. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I, still I, waiting to hear the why he wants flow planner removed. Why? Yeah. So he made yeah. We're s- still just so you know. I mean, we write, we record like three episodes at a time, so we haven't left since the last podcast <laughs> that you listened to. We're still sitting here. We're still. So, so we I have know. not taken that phone call. I can't answer what David uh, Patterson has said. However. I can talk to you about the follow-up calls that I have had. Um, so um, we went from, I told you, Julie Danis, the writer on our script, did a review. I told you David Patterson did a review. And then I've had two others since then. We talked about Michael Kaplan a little while back. He also reviewed. And now we're at Nicole Bernardi Race, And she was the one who um, watched it. Is so, you know, told me how proud she is of me. She's watched the process from the beginning. She was super encouraging um, and so gentle and tender with how she was like giving us notes and comments and things like that. Um, and just so incredibly kind. And yet I, I got off the phone call with her just wanting to go and bury my head in a pillow and think, oh. I'm never going to do this again. <laughs> Especially because she went for a, the very first thing she said was a dagger in the heart, which was, let's talk about the VO. Oh, <laughs> very personal. Very personal. What'd she say? Well, um, she she said that it's all kind of one note. <clears throat> that was one comment. Everything's kind of one note. Second comment was, and sometimes I feel like you're sharing this personal journey, and other times you're the narrator, and it's confusing. Oh, Mm. yeah. That addresses the writing. Then she talked about how the film needed to be shorter because it was dragging. And as we started talking about it, we realized that it's a tale of two films, in the first half, there is a great pacing. It moves along very quickly. It's very interesting and fascinating. The second half comes along, and it takes a lot for stories to develop. It's slower. It's a lot more complicated to understand. And people start to feel like it's long. Hmm. Now, I think in listening to her comments, what's hard to parse out is, well, what's the reason for that? Well, we... we it's easy to think it's just the editing. Let's edit some things out. Like the easiest thing to do is say, let's take out a minute here and take out a minute there. But we had been doing that, and we had gotten it as tight as we thought we could get it. So then the next thing you have to look at, she also made a comment that the score was kind of one note and seemed the same throughout the film except for a few places. 
What she didn't know was that we haven't had it rescored since um, – I'm thinking, when did we have it rescored? We had it rescored back in August or September, something like that, I think. Um, so since then, all the edits that we've done, Bill is just kind of faking the score. He's just reusing whatever, and right, and right. that's not Bill's job. He's just an editor. <clears throat> so he does as good as he could, and it's and it really was just so we get to the next screening, right? So we know that the score is not really placed where it should be, but she was saying it's kind of one note. It feels a little overscored, and it's kind of plodding in some places. So, so then we're like, gosh, now we have to look at the VO. Now we have to look at the score. And she was asking for more archival images and video. One rule of thumb is if things are moving too slowly, particularly in interviews, you begin adding more images for people to look at, and it doesn't seem as long. Sure. Right. So, so at that point, we were like, that's why I, when I went to bed and I was like, oh, my gosh, I have to start all over. <laughs> so I went to bed. That was New Year's Eve just so dejected and I woke up the next day and I thought well if there's any time to reinvent the wheel it's now you know we're trying to do one last revision we've already looked at a bunch of stuff we've had professionals who know what they're talking about point out some of our weaknesses let's just dig in and and do it and 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 the great thing is Bill always says this to me, and if you're an editor, it's so helpful. Please just, like, put this on repeat when you're working with a director. It's okay. We can restore whatever we do. We have all the last versions of everything. You're not going to lose anything. We can make this edit and bring it back if we don't like it, you know. It's, it's easy to think of that when you're writing a piece of paper and you delete something and you can add it back. When you are think, working in film, it's, you just don't readily think you can just – have it right back but yeah. you can just undo yeah you just undo <laughs> so um so then we're like okay well we've got what we have done now let's let's go in and see if we can apply these changes and if it will make a difference and it has been brutal and i realized that the one thing that was problematic for me and what i was most resistant to when she started talking about the VO and we had to come to grips that, with that it wasn't necessarily my narration as a VO artist. It was more the voice I was talking in or the speed at which I was talking in or the music that was supporting it. And so um, she made a comment about how sometimes they were on this journey with me and I was passionate and excited about things and interested in things. But then other times I was just telling history things or just mm -hmm. being a narrator and that did not work for her. So Bill and I have just spent, since this morning at 9.30, um, reviewing changes that I made last night, taking the entire script and deleting or rewriting anything in passive narrator voice and wow. putting everything in first person. Wow. So in doing, I mean, and it really is a total rewriting of the film. Yeah. Because you're... What happened was in the film, we started on a, on a personal journey of discovery with me. For the second act, I went away, and we're just listening to French stories. Third act, I come back in, but it's all narrator voice. Hmm. It's all talking about history of Normandy and what happened. Then I come back in 
you know, a little ways into the fourth act, and I'm back to what I learned or what I saw. So we had to critically look at all of those different places. In doing that, we saw weaknesses in the script. That led us to delete two sacred cows that we have been refusing to get rid of in our edit. And it wasn't Flo Plana. But oh, he's coming, though, right? <laughs> I will go to my grave with Flo Plana in this film. Flo Plana, what we did decide, you know, regardless of what David said, is that Flo Plana is the poster boy for what I am talking about. Mm. Flo is a third generation after the group of survivors where the stories have been passed on, the passion has been passed on, and that passion leads him to gratitude and to action to continue to thank these veterans and make sure they are never forgotten. And he is relatable to a younger audience. And so for me, he can't come out. So what are the other two sacred cows? So one was a scene with Marie Pascal Legrand. She is a woman who experienced incredible trauma on her mother's side of the family and father's side of the family. I think they lost about total 30 members of their family. And I just want you just to take a minute to take that in. 30 members of their family, like on one day, that's like my family is one of six. So that would mean all of my sisters, you know, husbands and their children, my parents, my grandparents. I mean, it's like, imagine if your entire family and extended family was wiped out in one day. That's what happened to Marie Pascal Legrand's family on her mother's side and her father's side. And she, on the 40th anniversary of D-Day, was sitting at Pointe Hawk as Ronald Reagan spoke and was, she says, I was struck almost mystically or brutally by the realization that I would not be free if it was not for these men. She was at Pointe Hawk sitting with veteran rangers. If it wasn't for these men right here. And... Even though it was the allies that killed all of her family, she realized that it was those men that also gave her the opportunity to live. So she is telling the stories about her first interaction with her first veteran, about how she realized this and it changed her. And we tell several stories because in the end, really what happens, as you remember— is that she takes care of one of our American heroes, First Division medic Charles Shea. So she she has now spent her life caring for these American veterans, not just giving them things, not just writing them cards, but right now she has taken in a veteran that was neglected in the United States, didn't have medical care and was lonely. He's living in her house. She's taking care of him every day, and she's given him new life. So that is all motivated from that mystical revelation that she had on the 40th anniversary of D-Day. So it's a profound, heavy story, right? That should be a documentary in and of itself. In itself, itself. (laughs) correct. And what's the other sacred cow? Is Valerie Gauthier-Cardin. She met her first veteran when she was 14 years old, riding her bike to the post office. She saw this veteran. He didn't really speak French, but he said, "In 19, I was a veteran in your village in 1944. I don't speak French well, but I drank a lot of Calvados. 
And she's like, oh, you're a World War II veteran. He's like, yes, I'm a World War II veteran, and I've come back to thank the people who helped me. And so she takes him to their home. They have coffee and Calvados, and they begin to make the connections between her town and, um, you know, in his stories. And she, it, we have her telling them in English, but it is a very long story that takes a long time to develop. And it's hard to understand because it's, you know, broken English. And we love her. And her motivation for what she does, she now runs Veterans Back to Normandy. She's a cafeteria worker in a middle school. She has those middle school children raise money through neighborhoods and things like that, not for their sports teams, but to bring veterans back to Normandy to honor them. So she founded an organization called Veterans Back to Normandy, and she uses those funds, and they bring the veterans back, bring them into the schools to talk with the kids, and then takes them to all these ceremonies and such. So her veteran interaction motivated her to do what she's doing today. And it's such a powerful story. We have a, a section in there where she also talks about she was with a veteran. She connected a veteran with a French person. And the veteran was so afraid to confront the French people, he was always late to the events. He didn't want to go. Because he was so upset about all the damage and destruction that his unit did in Normandy. But she introduced him to this woman who said, I was in St. Lo, the town that you destroyed. I was there. I saw the destruction. I know what you did. I forgive you. I still thank you. And when she thanked him for liberating her village, he was liberated. So Valerie tells this important story later on, and we wanted to show how her motivation began when she was 14. I think, like, just listening to you, like, uh, there's a lot, there are so many stories. And it, it does, they're great stories that need to be told, but it can be tiresome. Yeah. Right? Um, right away, I think of a film, uh, Cor- uh, Courageous. It's uh, the Kendrick Brothers, actually Bill... Yeah, Bill Evil uh, edited that. Um, I walked out of that film. The, the purpose of that film was to to make fathers, you know, kind of stand up and do what they need to do as husbands and fathers. And 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 on one sense, they they did that where I felt motivated to be a better father, you know. But the but as a someone who enjoys film, it was dragged down because there were so many stories they wanted to tell. They wanted to tell a story about a single dad and a divorced dad uh, and a dad. Had, you know, about ready to leave, and a dad who really wasn't having any problem. They wanted to cover every spectrum. It was like you were telling too many stories, and a an effective film, I think, is one that can tell uh, one story well, right? And you have so much oh, gosh. in your quiver <laughs> of arrow, right? You know, I like, know, and you but, have no idea of what's not in exactly, there. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and when an audience member sees that film, they don't know what's not in there. Right. You do, which is the burden you have to carry. Right. Now, the good news is we live in a world where you can have DVD extras right. or it can be online or a museum or whatever, that sort of thing. But You are hitting on something critical that I learned through this process. And it is that a film cannot only be about what you want to tell. Right. 
you must consider the audience. And I, it took me sitting through 30 screenings to really get that message because in sitting through 30 screenings, I sat in IMAX theaters. I sat in classrooms. I've sat in living rooms. I've, I've watched this you know, in just about every configuration you can possibly imagine, in a hospital, on a computer. Like, I've watched it a whole bunch of different ways with lots of different people. And you realize that humans are limited. And their enjoyment of a film, this was critical for me to learn, their enjoyment of a film is based on how they feel physically. This is huge. Like, I think I've talked about this before. But if people are comfortable if they're not hungry, if they don't have to go to the bathroom, if it's not noisy around them, they can watch a film with their full attention and enjoy it. If those, if any one of those things is out of whack, their ability to take stuff in is going to be compromised. Mm. And they also have limited attention. I mean, it's a lot to ask somebody to sit for an hour and a half and give up at their time. Right. So, and I learned that just getting them to a theater, just getting them to (laughs) actually, even if it's just on their phone, take an hour and a half of their time out of their lives. Like, that's another thing I learned. Like, when you are asking people to give you an hour and a half of their time these days, that's a huge sacrifice. People are incredibly busy. For them to stop and do something for you, to watch this for you, it's, it's a sacrifice. And so I've really had to think about, as I've been going through these process, exactly what you're talking about. Are we inundating and deluging, deluging these people, you know, so much so that it, it lessens the impact of what they're hearing. Mm-hmm. And I did have one guy come up to me. I think I've talked about him before where he said, I was going to donate to your film in the beginning. I was so overwhelmed and emotional by the time it was over, I forgot. I couldn't process anything. And, I, and, and David Chapman, who's in our movie, after he saw it the first time, he's like, I need time to process what I just saw before I talk to you. you know. And so I think at that point, now that I think back, We had gotten to a point where we had put the audience through too much. Mm. Yeah. And they were like, I've I've had enough. Yeah, because as the filmmaker, you feel like, oh, this is a gift. They got to hear this story. Oh, here's another gift. They got to hear this story. But every time you keep adding those stories on, you're actually taking away from the other stories because it's. Yeah, and I think people have like an emotional account. Like you have money in your pocket. I use this analogy with my wife all the time. Really? What do you, how to, what's your analogy? <laughs> well, you have to. I mean, you, you. I don't know if it's an analogy you're using, but <laughs> it's you have to make deposits before you can make a withdrawal. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's basically what I'm talking about. Is like you have a limited amount of time that you're able to sit and share. Mm-hmm. You have a limited amount of emotions that you're able to expend with before it depletes you too much. Right, right, right. right that it's right. not enjoyable. Like there's that that balance that you have to make. Um, and so, you know, that's what I've learned through this process. You, it's a it's a balancing act. All right. Well, hey, that was that was a good uh, discussion. Was, yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. Well, good let's, things uh, to learn. Yes, we've got more to talk about. Um, so uh, we'll wrap up here. I just want to say thank you for listening to Documentary First, uh, where we believe everyone has a story to tell, and you can be the one to tell it. Bye, everybody. 
Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you so much for listening, for donating, and for following along on our journey. If you are able to make a donation this week, we really would appreciate it. We are supported by donors who give us $100 or less, so anything helps. Also, if you're able to share the news about the girl who wore freedom with your friends and family, please do that on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email, and sign up for our newsletter at Normandy Store. Please go to normandystories.com slash donate to make a donation today.